Hey listeners, it's me, Steph. I gotta apologize because our sound is not amazing this month. Jude's microphone took a little bit of a vacation, so the sound is a little wonky, but the content is great and we really hope you stick with us. Uh, We'll be back again next month with both microphones firing on all cylinders. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Well met, friends. I'm Jude Vase. And I'm Steph Midlock. Welcome to Atherbeth, a podcast exploring the very views of Tolkien's legendary. Awesome. Hi, Jude. How are you? I'm all right. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, good weekend. We had a really good weekend. We sure did. Yeah. We're going to tell you guys all about it. Um, but first, let's just circle back to, you know, COVID-19 one more time. Hey, remember when we said we were going to take this off the outline? And, <laughs> and then, you know, vaccination efforts stalled. And uh, now we have a new variant that's that's rip-roaring around, making people shut back down. So go get the fucking vaccine, you knuckleheads, if you don't already have it. Don't uh, move to Idaho <laughs> to get away from the... Uh, vaccine laws in California, and then post a bunch of selfies on Facebook about freedom. Uh, <laughs> weirdly specific, but you know, oh boy. maybe you know who you are if you don't listen to my podcast, because I'm sure you don't. That seemed pointed. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it's a random family member who recently uh, moved to Idaho for mm. freedom, as in medical freedom. Oh, oh, wink, wink. Yeah. Wink, wink. Well, for those of you who are not in Jude's family, we urge you to protect yourself and others by wearing a mask whenever it's possible and necessary. Practice social distancing. Keep your fucking hands clean. Come on, guys. Why do we have to keep saying the hand thing? Everybody wash your your hands. And um, listen, if you are able, we know that not everybody in the world is able yet to get the vaccine. Um, I we, we certainly hope that that will become available to you soon. And if you're in the States, please get the stupid vaccine. Come on, get yeah. the vaccine. Stop it. Stop it. Don't be you're being yes. annoying. Stop it. Uh, Stop not doing it. Are yes. vaccinated. Yeah. Uh, put on a mask. And if you feel safe, go to a movie theater on July 30th and uh, see Dev Patel be a sexy knight. Oh, I'm still very frightened of going to places, but I I may try to make this one happen because I have been waiting for the Green Knight to be released for like ever, and I'm very excited about it. We covered it like a year ago. We did, yeah. You know, we we did it in May of 2020. It was episode 22, if you're interested. Uh, it was supposed to be released that next month, so it was very topical, and I was very excited. And then coronavirus so stopped that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, but it's finally coming out and if you if you want to wow your friends with your vast knowledge of Arthurian legend you should listen to Atherbeth episode 22. Yeah, we'll be retweeting the episode the day that the movie comes out so you don't have to work too hard for it. You should uh, go see that movie cuz A24 put out a really sweet RPG about it and by all accounts have made a really good movie and uh we need to keep Dev Patel working. For Steph's sake. Oh, we, I mean, (laughs) 
we do. He's he's a treasure. He's a treasure. We also got some really nice reviews lately. Um, yeah. Jude finally updated the website so Steph would stop bothering him. And in doing so, uh, I also re-enabled the plugin that let me so- that let me see international reviews because I'm too lazy to change the uh, iTunes dot etc extension and now i don't have to so i don't have to manually go look at our reviews from every country and we i saw some of our international reviews uh so we just wanted to say thank you to everyone who takes the time to leave a review we appreciate you yeah it means a lot it it definitely means a lot so thank you thank you guys so much we love you and um it's just great to know that you're here so thank you so much yeah so what did we do this weekend we were at a Tolkien Society seminar, and I mentioned that before we get into the main body of the episode because the Tolkien Society, which you should join and donate to because they're great, has two events coming up in the coming months that you should be aware of. The first, Oxenmoot, which is their annual shindig with parties and masquerades and, you know, academic papers, uh, which is surprisingly not as contradictory as you might think. If you've ever been to an academic conference, nerds can party, uh, <laughs> uh, is September 2nd through the 5th. It is okay. in Oxford, but they are doing a hybrid conference. So you can participate online and it's cheaper if you're a member. So go sign up and be a member of the Tolkien Society and save 10 whole British pounds on the sign up fees. That's a lot of pounds. And you get their wonderful publications, Amon Hem and uh, Malorn, that they put out. Yes. That's full of excellent scholarship. And boy, I mean, these folks are so smart. After coming off of this weekend, I feel so inspired to read more. So yeah, you should become a member and get, get all that good stuff. Yeah. And after listening to this episode, if you are feeling soups jazzed about participating in a Tolkien Society seminar... The next is on the 6th of November. Um, We will mention this at the bottom of the episode as well, in case you have forgotten by the time you get to the bottom and you are still soups jazzed. It is going to be on translating and illustrating Tolkien, which sounds super cool. So yeah, that's what's up. That's what's coming. And we've got some diverse paths to tread. So let's begin. What are we talking about this month? This is going to be a different kind of episode because this month, Steph and I, for the for the last two days, have attended virtually the Tolkien Society seminar on Tolkien and diversity, which has been fantastic. It's a free seminar that was held online. I mostly, I mean, really, I just sat at my desk in my office and let a bunch of these super smart people pour super cool information into my brain. Um, it was great. And what we'd like to do today is kind of talk about what we saw. Yeah, that's it. We're not going to try and summarize or we're not going to try and put our voices in too much here because this is a a big heady topic. And there was a surprising amount of trollish buttheadery on Twitter around the conference or around the seminar. So all we're, all we're going to do is talk about the various speakers and add our sort of enthusiastic comments on on the ones where we were particularly moved. And that's it. 
Yeah, it is a very big, that's a huge topic. And it's so, so important right now in this muddled and difficult landscape that we're all trying to navigate the world over, I think. So we just really want these beautiful, wonderful scholars' voice to, to shine here. So a big thank you to the Tolkien Society, to Sean and Will and everybody there for putting this on I, and for keeping the trolls at bay, the ones that got in. And yeah. also thank you to all the presenters uh, for all your hard work and for being brave. And I don't know. Yeah, just for all of your thoughts. It, it was, it was just event. wonderful. Yeah, it really was. I was actually like moved to tears a couple times because it was just awesome. I felt so excited to be there. So thank Same. you. Yeah. We wanted to start just before we get into there with a couple of statements of mindfulness that go along with this. There's a wonderful book by a woman named Ijoma Oluo called So You Want to Talk About Race. I read it for a book club with some folks from work, and it was excellent. From it, I've taken this kind of statement that I've written on a post-it and stuck on my computer, and I wanted to just to kind of say it because it's I think it's important. Basically, just... As white folks, we acknowledge and we must remember that white supremacy is a system that we benefit from and that our privilege has helped to uphold it. And that is not right. And we want to be part of the change to decentralize this and to make it yeah. not not true. So I just wanted to put that out there just to be mindful to start this off with like we're decentering ourselves from this yeah i think that's important it's important to put that statement up at the top to acknowledge not only our privilege but also to make clear our motives in raising up these other voices yeah great i'm glad you thanks thanks for saying that also before we jump in we wanted to do we wanted to do a land acknowledgement so representation and awareness you know, in the world of Tolkien is important and necessary. And we definitely found that over the last couple of days of this wonderful seminar. So as hosts of the Atherbeth podcast, we recognize the importance of representation and awareness, both in our daily lives and also in our podcasting lives. And part of that is acknowledging the ongoing impact that our privilege has had on Native people. Again, Jude and I are both here uh, in the United States, which has a terrible, long, very troubling history that's still happening now. So we wanted to to put this land acknowledgement up top. So while podcasts like Atherbeth exist in like a digital world, right? They're created in a physical space. And to recognize the historic and ongoing colonialism from which we continue to benefit, Atherbeth would like to acknowledge the land on which our podcast is made. So what is a land acknowledgement, you may ask? So I'm going to kind of go to folks smarter than myself. Author Selena Mills wrote an article called, What are Land Acknowledgements and Why Do They Matter? I will link to that article in the show notes. So she says, Land Acknowledgements are an honest and historically accurate way to recognize the traditional First Nations, Matisse, and or Inuit territories of a place. So to write a land acknowledgement is basically to spend time thinking about and reflecting on who was on the land, who was on that land before you were. A really excellent article from the Native American Institute at Michigan State University writes, the purpose of a land acknowledgement is to recognize, respect, and affirm the ongoing relationship between indigenous people and the land. Land acknowledgements also raise awareness of the indigenous histories, perspectives, and experiences that are often suppressed or forgotten. And I will link to that website in the show notes as well. 
So, you know, basically, as Selena Mills outlined in that article I mentioned, land acknowledgments recognize the relationship between indigenous people and the land. They ask us to think about how we came to be on that land, and they honor the original occupants of the land. So to create our land acknowledgments, uh, Jude and I accessed a website called Native Land Digital, which basically allows you to enter your address anywhere in the world, although not every area is covered yet, they're working on it, but you enter your address and it allows you to discover and learn about the indigenous territories that your address falls within. The map is a work in progress. Um, It's always being updated. And Native Land Digital is a registered Canadian not-for-profit organization. So if you're interested in supporting them, you can donate to them through their website. We will link it in the show notes. It is native-land.ca. So you put in your address, it zooms you in, it gives you the information, and then it allows you to then link through to those various websites to learn more. So that's what we did. Uh, If you're interested in writing your own land acknowledgement and want to learn more about it, you can head to the Native Governance Center website and check out their A Guide to Indigenous Land Acknowledgement page. We'll link it in the show notes. So that is a lot. I just wanted to give a very good opening to this because it's not something that everybody knows about. Yeah. Though it should be. Agreed. Cool. So I'm going to go first. So Jude and I obviously do not live near each other. Well, maybe not obvious. You may not know that. We used to. We were in high school together, but now we live very far away. So I'm going to go first. As hosts of the Atherbeth podcast, we acknowledge that Stephanie's home in the Bay Area, California, is located on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramaytush Ohlone peoples who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. We recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramaytush community, and we affirm their sovereign rights as First Peoples. To find out more about the Ramaytush Ohlone and to donate to their nonprofit work, you can visit their website at ramaytush.org. I will go ahead and link it. And this land statement was created from example text found on their website. The hosts of the Atherbeth podcast acknowledge that Jude's home in Northern Ohio is located on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Kaskaskia peoples, who are the original inhabitants of this area and are the predecessors of the historic and sovereign Peoria tribe of Indians of Oklahoma. We recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Peoria community, and we affirm their sovereign rights as First Peoples. To find out more about the Peoria Tribe of Indians in Oklahoma, please visit their website, peoriatribe.com. Great. Thanks, dude. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into it. So this seminar was across two days and there were 16 speakers. That's Uh, so many. Yeah. That was amazing. It was amazing, Uh, but it was a lot to cover. So we're not going to try and like give an in-depth on it. I think our methodology here is we are going to name the speaker and paper and give a very brief like one sentence summary of what it was, and then if it's one of the ones that in particular mo- motivated us, we'll talk more about it and we'll just kind of go from there. Perfect. So the first one was Cordelia Lodgson on Gondor in Transition, a brief introduction to transgender realities in Lord of the Rings, 
This wasn't a great one to open up on, I thought. It was less about looking for transgender characters. That's not what they were doing with their project. They were laying out ways in which themes and tropes and ideas could be recognized as, as significant and signifying to transgender individuals and the ways in which Gondor, therefore, was significant in that in that regard. Yeah, I really, if you don't mind, I'll just interject. I really liked their point that Gondor as a nation has gone through so many different phases of like having a stu having a king, not having a king, having something else, moving over here, moving over there, having a steward, not having a steward. So basically the transitory nature of Gondor, Gondor's like whole being is is important and I yeah. I really liked that. Yeah, I also really liked the note about looking looking for additional layers and meanings in the work was an additive process that they made, which I thought was yeah. very cool. And then, you know, and something I think is a takeaway that we can really use almost as a Tolkien framing device for the whole weekend was, you know, when we make room for these kind of long, unheard voices, it doesn't diminish anything for those who have been heard. I think that's like a, a real yeah. troll thing. To, to feel like, oh, I can't talk anymore, which is not the case. We can yeah. all have a seat at the table. Uh, so I, I, I really appreciated Cordelia for saying that. Uh, the second paper was The Problem of Pain, Portraying Physical Disability in the Fantasy of J.R. Tolkien by Claire Moore. This was a really interesting paper. It talked about the depiction of disability with a specific emphasis on how pain not just as depicted in the moment but how in chronic pain essentially or like continuing pain from a disability or disfigurement disfiguring wound is depicted and i think is a great example of some of the ways that this this seminar worked which was examining stuff you already knew and looking at it from a perspective you didn't have yes. because it's not as if i have never thought about the way that frodo's depiction of pain work, uh, you know, thought about that depiction or thought about Maedros or these other things. But I do not have a background in models of disability. Uh, uh, I don't, I can't remember the exact term, but uh, she talked about the two different models of looking at disability, the social model and the medical model, and how that applies to looking at the uh, pain, the way that characters are depicted as dealing with their pain and in Lord of the Rings and in Tolkien's materials. It was great. It was very, very interesting. Yeah, she stated that Tolkien, oftentimes in Tolkien's writing, pain, physical pain is transformed into a psychological pain. Yeah. So for example, when Maedros loses his arm, we don't really get there's not a lot in the text that says it's a very painful experience, but later he has this sort of shadow in his heart, right? Like you so but then there are also examples of physical pain staying as physical pain, but also being this psychological pain, which is, of course, when Jude, Jude mentioned Frodo and being stabbed on Weathertop and how that wound never really healed, right? Physically, but then also mentally, it took him to the point where he had to leave Middle Earth. There's no going home yeah. again once you experience that kind of trauma. And it's just not some, I think it's like, yeah, I know he's in pain, but to really think about it and how it translates between physical and psychological pain uh, was very eye-opening. I thought that was wonderful. Yeah, that was a good paper. It was. 
the last thing I'll say on it is I thought it was also really interesting that she called out the the Nordic depiction of disablements, the idea that some of these heroes would have like an arm chopped off or something, and it wouldn't be a disability or a wound. It would be like a disfiguring feature. And in those depictions, it's never, you know, they, oh, it hurts so much. And then they go on to like kick a bunch of butt with their other arm, which is very, yeah. very Midros who like, oh God, kill me. My hand hurts so much. And then he's like, all right, I'll cut your arm off. And then he's fine. Uh, yeah. Not fine. But like, then he learns to swing a sword, per, you know, even better with his left hand. And it just becomes like a thing that Midros has. And I think that that was also really interesting showing that he was perhaps his depiction of this disability was informed by these older, these older epic tale tropes. Agreed. Yeah, that was excellent. Uh, the next one was the burnt hand teaches most about fire, applying traumatic stress and ecological frameworks to narratives of displacement and resettlement across cultures in Tolkien's Middle Earth by V. Elizabeth King, which is a mouthful of a title <laughs> to a, a, a paper that is actually, I feel like it actually was a much more succinct topic than that title makes it sound like. She was talking about the various elven cultures, specifically elven cultures, although she did sort of name check some other ones, but it was specifically elven cultures and how and how you can apply models of displacement and refugee trauma and stress to those cultures and kind of the way that all these various elven cultures have been displaced and have colonized other areas and how they represent and how they display trauma and stress that you see in real world cultures and whether that's representative and it was really, really interesting. And it really does, to me, it really highlighted something that came up a couple in a couple of different papers, which was the, the topic of like elven colonialism and the idea that they're both, that they are both colonizers and refugees in different circumstances. And I think yeah. that would be, I don't know that I'm necessarily qualified to speak on that subject, but I want someone to speak, to, to write that paper. Um, yeah. But I think it's very interesting the colonial tropes in the creation of the elven realms. Yeah, absolutely. Are you are you referring to sort of she pointed out the difference between Ororfer, who is, you know, the elves of Doriath who established the woodland realm, right, of the Sylvan elves like, you know, mm -hmm. like Thandril and stuff in in Mirkwood, who who were like they basically they took in the refugees of the elves of Doriath, right? Like that's how that place got established was based on refugees versus Galadriel, who established Lothlorien as a place to hold and hoard memories of a home that she missed because it was her choice to go to this new land, but it didn't mean she didn't miss it and wanted to create mm -hmm. something where people could, where elves, right, could come and experience that together. There's also very much like overtones of colonialist tropes with Galadriel because right. she has this yeah. like, I want to have my own realm to be a queen of. When right. she comes over. Um, yeah. And and the fact that she's Noldor and all of her people are Sylvan. Yeah. And in many cases in, in these kingdoms, you find Sylvan elves being the populace mm. and Noldoran or other Quendi elves, the el other elves that have seen the light of the trees right. are, are their, their nobility. Uh, yeah. So it was very interesting. 
It was. She made an excellent point, too, about intergenerational transition of trauma, which is something we see, for example, in the Sons of Feanor, right? Like they were mm-hmm. that that trauma of Feanor sort of, lo- right, losing his dad and the Silmarils and all that stuff. You know, the the anger that he felt was tr- was transitioned to the that next generation. And that was something that ultimately Tolkien basically said that it's a it was a moral failing of them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Sure. I she did also make the point about Elrond. This is like when I got kind of misty. Like um, she talked a little bit about Elrond, who set up in Ladris or Rivend, as we know as Rivendale, to kind of take in those refugees. And she, the speaker said that he transitions from a refugee to a lord, sort of throughout his life. She talks about his work there as like demonstrating compassion through his service. So he. Oh, yeah, I remember this point. Yes, yeah, go I ahead. This. Sorry. He, he, mm-hmm. She talked about how, um, while it's not the case, in, while it's not universal, obviously, but Elrond demonstrates the propensity in sufferers of traumatic stress, uh, like in refugees, to show charity and um, to return service to the, to the communities of people like, like them to serve the community, the other refugee communities. And Elrond, who comes, you know, was orphaned and, and held hostage, becomes a lord of his, of, of Imladris, sets up this community to shelter and serve the Sylvan refugee communities. And he becomes a healer and a, a wise man or a wise elf, whatever, rather than being known as a warrior, despite what fucking Peter Jackson thinks. <laughs> noted chiefly as a healer and i thought that was really interesting so yeah that was great thanks for saying that's what i was trying to say thank you so that was a really that was a really thought-provoking paper i really like that one yeah me too excellent work uh this next one was one of my favorites (laughs) really blew my ding dang mind uh so it was called the invisible other tolkien's dwarf women and the feminine lack by Sarah Brown, Dr. Sarah Brown. Mm-hmm. So I legitimately thought I had heard everything that could be said about female dwarves because this is <laughs> not a new topic. Sure. But what Dr. Brown did is looked at female dwarves and kind of examined what the implications are of, of Tolkien setting up the female dwarves the way he did. Tolkien says that the female dwarves look exactly like the male dwarves, but they rarely leave the dwarven realms. Like, that's basically all we know about female dwarves. Mm-hmm. And she made these really fascinating points, looking at some feminist theory, reference Simone de Beauvoir, and a few other really great quotes to sort of show what that means for that culture and what, Tol- what Tolkien is implying about the female role, both within dwarf culture and sort of as a general, what he's viewing about, you know, their importance in that culture. And it was fascinating. I, I cannot possibly do it justice here, and I'm not going to try to. But like I said, it was applying, and this was, like I said before, this was one of those cases where it was a topic I, I legitimately thought I had heard every possible goddamn argument for, against, up, up and down on. And she brought a, a level of knowledge that I didn't have. I have not deeply read any of these other authors that she has read, obviously. And that deepened my understanding of the subject really in a really excellent, fascinating way. And I can't wait to read the whole paper. I'm really excited to get it. And when 
these speeches go when these talks go up on YouTube, which apparently is the plan, uh, I will certainly link this one on our Twitter because I think it was terrific. And yeah, it was it was it was terrific. Um, there was one quote that really <laughs> blew my mind, which was Tolkien apparently found the problem of dwarf women super complicated, like <laughs> as complicated as the problem of orcs, which I thought was just so preposterous. I wrote it in the notes that Steph and I were making, like, why is the problem of dwarf women so complicated? Just make, just say that there's women. It's, there was literally no theological problems with, with there just all of a sudden being dwarf women. Right. There was. It's it, so weird. It was such. It, <laughs> it's not like like nothing about any other part of his creation would indicate why this was such a problem for him. It was fucking bizarre. Yeah. No, you're right. It really was. And as we're sitting here talking about it, you know the the other kind of group that we find this in in the main text are the Ents, right? Because they mm -hmm. lost their wives as well. So we're never introduced to any. At least we get one female dwarf right dis in but only in the appendices right not in the main text not but even like, like yeah we don't like get any named yeah. female ends ever no i know it's just it's just a passing reference to her yeah. anyway but man like where are they where are they i don't know so, uh that was great though thank you sarah that was excellent yeah a huge huge props for this this one this was one of my personal favorites of the of the weekend yeah the next one was called uh, Projecting Indian Myths, Culture, and History onto Tolkien's World by Sultana Raza. In this one, she proposed looking at the two foundational texts of India, the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, although we didn't get to the Mahabharata. Uh, she just talked about the Ramayana. And what she did is she looked at, she acknowledged at the top that there's no particular evidence that Tolkien had any significant exposure to Hindu mythology or language. What she was what she was looking to do was say, how can we like it's right there in the title, project. How can how can we see what crossover exists there and just explore Tolkien through the lens of Hindu culture, mythology, language, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. She looked at the the gods and their names, uh, plot sort of tropes and plots and heroes. It reminded me uh, nothing so, of nothing so much as the way that Proto-Indo-European was reconstructed. The way that they looked at, okay, so we have a name for a uh, paternal lightning god. It, we, have, or not, we have a paternal lightning god in like seven cultures. What's his name? Yeah. And they put all the names together and they just were like, okay, now do that for like everything we can find in every culture, in every language on in Eurasia. Um, it kind of reminded me of that, of looking at these myth forms and seeing how they recur in multiple places and seeing how they uh, they line up. And I thought that was super interesting. It was cool. It was a fun one. I, I uh, really enjoyed it. Me too. I particularly liked her description of the story of Lord Rama and his family who basically hung out in the forest in disguise for a while. Mm -hmm. And she kind of likened it to Aragorn and his time um, doving around a strider. Yeah. <laughs> I just kind of liked that. I thought that was pretty living off the land and helping yep. out kings. That's, they both did that. And I thought that was pretty neat. So yep. yeah, that was excellent. Uh, the next one was the Lossoth. Indigeneity, Identity, and Anti-Racism by Nicholas Burns. This one started off with a land acknowledgement, which Steph got very excited about. Yeah, um, it was great. This one was really interesting. This one talked about Arvidui, 
who was a Gondorian king that fled up to the north to a tribe of people that were basically Inuits. It wasn't, not an allegory, but like they were Inuits with a different name. The author talked about how in many ways, this is a, like a really good depiction of indigenous cultures. In other ways, it falls into a lot of the familiar shitty tropes of like the wise indigenous who know things that, you know, the, the, the silly white man don't know. But then they also have Arvedui being like, you silly people, you're not wise like me. I'm a white man kind of thing. And they try and tell the king like, hey, that boat seems sketchy. Maybe don't get on that boat back to Gondor. Wait for the summer when it's not so sketchy. And he's like, nah, it's cool. Yeah. There's I like got a big this. storm. And, yeah. and then pfft, dead. And yeah, we actually talked about this in the episode from the holidays this past year uh, because one of the Palantir also sunk on that boat and was never discovered again. Yep. It's a great example of more sort of excluded voices. This is really the only mm -hmm. time we get something like this in Tolkien's yeah. Legendarium. And it it's not a huge part of the story, but they are there. And I think that's something to be said. Nicholas Burns also kind of drew some similarities to the Same people, who are the indigenous folks um, in Scandinavia. I think that that's not a group that, uh, at least in the States, I don't remember learning about the Same at all uh, in school. Uh, so I was glad. I, I knew about about them from from other stuff I'd learned, but it was cool to hear about that. Yeah, it was an interesting talk talking about how Tolkien would have been sufficiently familiar with an indigenous people to to create this depiction in the Lossoff of what an American would be like. Hey, it's a it's an Inuit because it was you know written at a time when maybe that was not as commonly under that was not a commonly known culture. Sure. So it was cool. It was interesting. I enjoyed that one a lot. Yeah. And then we had, this one was fun, Christine Larson, who you may remember from last month's episode about astronomy. Mm. She had a paper called The Problematic Perimeters of Elrond Half-Elven and Ronald English Catholic. This was a fucking cool piece. Yeah. It proposed that despite his self-identification as a hobbit or as Faramir... That the character that he is, that Tolkien was most like, was in fact uh, Elrond. And it walked through some of the ways in which their characters and histories were very similar, which alone was very, was very, very interesting. But more importantly, it also highlighted the ways that they occupied, and this is a quote, liminal and queer places in society, mm -hmm. which was super interesting, both because it highlighted the ways in which Elrond does not fit into elven society in a lot of ways. And it also highlighted the ways in which Tolkien was a bit of an outcast beyond just his Roman Catholicism, which is how everybody kind of identifies him. Like, oh, he was a Roman Catholic in England. So obviously he knew what it was like to be an outsider, but there was more to it than that. Um, it was. And I think for people who are in a hurry to be dismissive of Tolkien's ability to ability or desire to depict the outsiders or the people, you know, anyone outside of uh, the norm. I think this makes an excellent point that this was, he was someone that could and would have wanted to depict people in the liminal and queer spaces. Yeah. Yeah. It was really cool. I, I really enjoyed this piece a lot. And she had a giant Elrond cardboard standee in the background for the whole time. 
So. Christine is awesome. She, yeah. I, I just really liked her sort of final thoughts were that, you know, on a very basic level, both Elrond and Ronald Tolkien transform their personal pain into public hope. And I thought, and that made me kind of like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. I just really loved it. Uh, I thought that was wonderful. Um, she's the best. I love, I, I actually was thinking, I wish she, I don't think that she has social media. No. But I want to be her friend. So if someone could arrange that, that would be great. I want, I need her in my life. She's just yeah. cool. I just think she's a cool, yeah, cool gal. She also touched on uh, a subject that comes up uh, in a couple of other pieces, which is the the sort of the subject of like homoamory. The idea of there being not necessarily homosexual, but somewhere like a step greater than friendship, but not necessarily a sexual relationship. But like a love that transcends friendship between two between two individuals, between Elrond and Gilgalad. And I think she does a really good job of of depicting why you can make a, a pretty strong case for that being something that Tolkien was familiar with and would have included in his stories. Yeah, and uh, a speaker on the second day talked about that again. So maybe we can mention it um, yeah. a little later on. Oh, and you must have loved this next one, Jude. Yeah, the last one was Hearkening to the Other, Athrobeth Finrad a Andreth by Cami Egan. Guess what? I really love the Athrobeth. And Whoa, hearing really? someone else talk about how great the Athrobeth was was really fun. <laughs> it, was, talk- it was really fun. Yeah, really. Like, she talked about how fucking cool the Athrobeth was. Yeah. And about how... The piece is notable in that it is two people from different societies listening to each other and accepting each other's points of view without prejudice. Although once you get over Finrod being a elf centric patriarchal butthole at the very beginning. <laughs> and then uh, the term elf splaining came up at one point, which I thought was really oh, hilarious. I loved it. <laughs> uh, it. But it was great. The idea that they he listens and accepts what she says and turns it into this very hopeful dynamic vision of what the future, what the future could be for his people and her people. Um, Yeah. And without like, without like talking to each other and and listening to one another, they wouldn't understand the despair of the other, right? The other being elves or men as a group. I thought that was awesome. Yeah. I thought it was great. And it was just a, a really fun piece about how two individuals from different peoples and cultures learned from the other and how it deepened their view of the world. I yeah. thought that was great. And the author bath is the best and everybody should read it. That's yeah. all. I got, again, I don't know if I was just in a weird mood yesterday or what, but like uh, I got a little teary at the end when Cammy said, you know, even if they're, their t- their chat can't fix all the problems caused by Melkor. Their connection restores hope, which is really important. Yeah. And Finrod asks Andreth to wait for him and his brother when she finds the light and he'll come and find her. And I, oh, I'm getting like yeah. emotional just thinking about it. I thought that was wonderful. And, you know, so thank you to Cammy for pointing out that learning from the quote unquote other deepens your own worldview. And that's so beautifully um, shown in the Afterbeth. So yep. gosh, it's weird. It's almost like someone named a podcast after it. Yep. Right. It was you. It was right. you. So that was the, the end of the first day. 
Yeah, it was a big day. Big day. We were big so day. jazzed after it, weren't we? We were. I we also were had excited. like 14 cups of coffee, so I think it was like nervous jittery, but it yeah. was great. I, I felt so jazzed. The second day started with someone we had seen speak before at, yeah. the, uh, conf- at the seminar, I guess it was, in New York at the Morgan Library. Christopher Vaccaro gave a talk called Pardoning Saruman, the queer in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, in which he went through and talked about how Saruman is associated with the medieval concept of Sodomita and how many of his characteristics represent these traditional tropes and depictions of the queer. Lust for power, greed, pride, hatred, his henchmen, the orcs, all that stuff. And then how he, how the various drafts of Saruman's death and lack of redemption and stuff uh, display different, sort of reinforce that. And it was very interesting. I, I thought it was, especially knowing that he had given that other piece, which his previous talk in New York had been on the homoamory between Sam and Frodo. It really was interesting looking at Saruman in that context. Um, he was particularly interested in sort of like the Neoplatonic view of Lord of the Rings, which I had never particularly thought too hard about, but I think is a really interesting way of looking at it. So, Absolutely. And he mentioned the different drafts of the chapter, Many Partings, um, and how you can really see Tolkien was kind of still deciding what to do with Saruman in a way, because in draft A and draft B, we see Saruman having almost a, like a nice moment with Mary when Mary offers him some pipe weed. And he basically was like, oh, you should watch out for Cosimo in the Shire, like almost kind of warning him of danger in a way. Like yeah. there's a little bit of a softening. But then, you know, from the, the published version, it's it's very nasty again he sort of warns mary but he's like oh there's something shitty waiting for you in the shire fucker you know so he really like he so tolkien reverted to keeping saruman as this kind of like crap basket yep yeah it was very interesting. He also made some parallels between Kinnewolf and Kinnehair and kind of the, those old English dudes and um, yep. how they kind of deal with retribution for, for terrible crimes and whatnot. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. I think that there's more to say on that. It sounded like a chapter from a, a larger piece. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we'll, we'll have to look out for that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the next one was Desire of the Ring, an Indian academic's adventures in her quest for the perilous realm by Sunali Chundakar. This was really interesting. This piece basically was looking at how someone in India, raised in India, would get into Lord of the Rings as a fan and as an academic and how they would perceive it. So it looked at both how familiar they would be with some of the language, but also like the availability of academic materials. It was really interesting. It's it's a weird one to try and summarize, so I won't try too much, but it, it really was fascinating to hear someone from a totally different cultural perspective talk about how they got into Lord of the Rings and the difficulties faced that they faced trying to get access to materials and how Lord of the Rings has a totally different cultural standing in India. So that was really interesting. 
Yeah, I think um, two points that she made that I wanted to bring up was, uh, I think it's like the 20 year anniversary or 25 year, I don't know, I can't count, but of Pete Jackson's original trilogy coming out. And she made the great point that, you know, those movies were so popular that they actually led to more translations coming out and being available in India that were not available before. So even if you like, I love those films, but if you didn't like them, I think that they, you know, had some positive things come from them. Absolutely. And what a great example. Yeah. The second thing I wanted to bring up is that, you know, she she brings up that whilst the main texts are available, the, there's very limited access to, uh, you know, the lesser trod paths, so things that we might talk about here yeah. on Aftermath, and then scholarly stuff, like the stuff that the Tolkien Society is putting out, right, or things that, like, Verilyn Flieger's writing, th- those are not available. Yeah, it's just nothing. Um, yeah. yeah, and another person touched on that later, too, and I thought, oh, my God, I never even thought about that, because what it does is it, it basically says if you are not an, an English speaker, you know, you're left out of, of all of this. The, the main body of criticism around Tolkien, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, excellent point. I really enjoyed enjoyed that, and I, I would like to hear more from her. Yeah. The next piece was the first of two about surveys. Uh, this one was by Robin Reed. Uh, it was Queer Atheists, Agnostics, and Animists. Oh, my. <laughs> Best title. <laughs> uh, what this basically was, was looking at Tolkien respond, uh, respondents to a survey and analyzing how people related to Tolkien with regards to religion and their religion and their queerness. She didn't try and make too many, like, didn't try, didn't really have a thesis, wasn't trying to make that. She just wanted to sort of, she was just starting to kind of get into the data but it was really interesting to see how people who felt like they didn't have a voice or didn't have a a a representation religiously in Tolkien were were engaging with it so yeah I think um it's important to say too that her talk today uh of the respondents of the survey 34 percent identified as LGBTQ plus um, from that community. And so she was to make, to make this kind of more manageable for herself for this very short amount of time, she focused on that 34% and how that specifically, how that group, um, you know, what data she got from those respondents. And so I think that was, that was, again, it's a group that we don't know, you know, we we're increasingly hearing more from, but not enough, not enough yet. So absolutely. It was, I mean, there's not a lot to say about this one because it was really just what did the data say was the was the bulk of the piece. But it was really interesting. It was interesting to hear how the how these communities are look at at Tolkien and the correlations between the data. Yeah. And uh, she sort of ended by saying, like, the stories that people tell about their own readings of Tolkien is powerful. Yeah, and that, that was very the, cool. Yeah, 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 and the, the survey, you know, again featured the previously voiceless people, and that those opinions, you know, have not been in the foreground of scholarship. But like, man, what if they were? What the? Yeah, that would add so much. Yeah, yeah. great. So I, so it sounds like she's going to be publishing more on that survey, and I'd like to hear yeah. more. Sounds like it. The next one was Hidden Visions: Iconographies of alter- Alterity in Soviet Bloc Illustrations. For Lord of the Rings by Joel Mariner, also known as Why Jude Won't Sleep Soundly Tonight. Uh, <laughs> this this was, was awesome. This one was awesome. It was looking, he specifically focused on a series of covers from Poland and the Ukraine uh, and one other place. And Russia. And Russia of Lord of the Rings covers. And he talked about how the local artistic 
and cultural environment produced their particular covers and why they looked the way they did and what they were representing. Super yeah. interesting talk, but the picture of fucking Frodo <sighs> okay. on, on the Polish book Okay, was so terrifying. the guy, the artist is, is his. Uh, it's Serenioski. It's a Polish, right? Polish version, night from 1981, yeah. and I think Jude will never be the same. It, Basically, it depicts Galadriel and Frodo, and Galadriel sort of just looks like placid and nice, and then Frodo kind of has no, this crazy. No, Galadriel looks like a gray in a bonnet <laughs> with with nipples, and Frodo. Frodo looks like Frodo looks like one of those. I I don't even have words for it. Frodo has got this weird buzzy ass hair. There's an apple on his dang head, and he's got like covered in like these lines on his chest that are supposed to represent wounds. I guess. Yeah. Like I love it was that. Fascinating. I'm not trying to dunk on 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 it. It's no very it really intense, cool. fascinating images. And yeah. the 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 author of the paper walked through like how. Each of those things was a specific kind of trope or signifier to the people at that time who were looking at these posters, who, if you were part of this small sub-community that, rec- that recognized those, those symbols, you, you knew, you sort of got the message he was trying to send with these covers, which was fascinating. Yeah, they're, just, like to- they're just terrifying. Well, I mean, art is subjective, so maybe you won't find them, dear listener. Maybe you might not find them terrifying. They, they, the messages basically had to be encrypted in order to get through censorship at the time. And so, does this this Frodo that you know Jude was talking about of Saranowski basically has this very neutral expression? And Joel made the point that that you're concealing the message with a neutral expression to kind of deflect unwanted attention. So he made the point like if you had a picture of like somebody with a screaming face or like he he used the um, analogy of like a tiger that might not right snarling that might not get through the censorship but somebody just kind of standing there that's going to get through yeah it was awesome and he's he, you know he talked about the apple on top of frodo's head and what that you know is like and oh man it was just excellent yeah. i oh boy i really liked it um i also really liked the ukrainian lord of the rings from 1993 the artist was this guy named ukimov and um he uses these tiles as a nod to totero to, oh, no. totalitarian imagery. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Because the tiles were used in that sort of brutalist architecture of yeah. the time, right? And and you see these tiles like in the background and it gives this very off-putting feeling. Like so they're medieval they, the the illustrations sort of look medieval, but then in a way it's not because it's like medieval knights set in brutalist architecture. It's so cool. Yeah, it was trippy. Yeah, it was really great. And, it, you know, here's the thing. I don't always focus on the art as much, right? Which is weird because I work in a freaking art museum. But, oh, okay, don't yeah. tell anyone I work with that. But it made me say I need to take a step back and, like, look at these different translations and see what illustrations they're using because it is intentional. And I think that's so yeah. cool. Uh, the next one was super interesting to me. Questions of Cast in The Lord of the Rings and its multiple Chinese translations by Eric Reinders. Yeah. So what this guy did was he, first he talked about the various translations of Lord of the Rings in China. And then what he did was look at how they are discussed on social media in China and how this, specifically how the topics of race are viewed by those fans. 
which was super interesting. Looking at like, how did the Chinese fans view the, what we would consider to be the somewhat race, somewhat or very racist terminology, the sallow skin and the, the, you know, the folds, the, the narrow eyes to the, uh, the dark skinned or the black skinned haradrim and so on and so forth. How do they view that? And so, and all this stuff. And it was really interesting to hear a about how vibrant the Lord of the Rings community in China was and B the degree to which the, the, the culture in China as influenced by the government caused the, the perception of these things to, to matter or not matter. Yeah. And how they viewed American fans as a consequence. It was fascinating. I, again, would not attempt to summarize it completely because it was a very, this was very much, and again, one of these things where you, you took something you think you know about, which is like the problematic depiction of races in The Lord of the Rings. And then you'd be like, well, okay, how do you, how do you think nerds on Chinese social media think about it? And you're like, right. I don't know. I didn't even know there was a lively Chinese Lord of the Rings fandom. But apparently like, there's a whole buttload of translations and there's a whole huge Lord of the Rings community over there and they've got their own whole thing going on. And that's fucking great and cool. And so it was really interesting to hear how he sort of like dove into their discussions and stuff. So it was fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, he definitely said that this is a part of a larger work. So um, if this is a topic you're interested in, make sure to check him out. Um, yeah. Yeah. Next, we have friend of the podcast, Don Walls Thuma who had a paper called Stars Less Strange, an analysis of fan fiction and representation within the Tolkien fan community. This was a really cool one to for me, and I'm sure for Steph as well. Yeah. Because it was like an evolution of what we talked about way back in episode 13. Wow. Yeah, so we had her as a guest on to present her findings from her survey, her right? Her first edition of the survey. And this paper is based on the second edition of her survey and what which is all about fan fiction yeah and the, the survey fan is all community. about the, the tolkien fan fiction community and so what she did is she started out by doing some high level like here's some stuff here here's some stuff that the respondent said but then she did some she dove into some analysis and she talked about some of the implications of that which was super fascinating uh, that she hadn't been in a position to do when we talked to her last. So it was cool to see how far she'd come, how she had honed in the survey and how she had gotten to be more, more comfortable talking about the implications and the history and stuff like that. And she talked, well, I think her, maybe not her point, but like one of the, one of her main thrusts of this talk was the way that Tolkien fandom simultaneously has an unusual reverence for canon not canon as like, this is the only story, but like having a knowledge uh, and familiarity with the writings of Tolkien. But at the same time, there's also a very powerful and popular reparative push within the fan fiction community. And finding how those two things sort of like balance out is interesting. She also talked about the fan fiction wars when the movies came out and some of the really super fucking gross stuff that happened with some of these fan fiction communities like threatening kids and really awful stuff that I, I did not know was a thing that happened. 
Yeah, the weaponizing of the canon, it was a very interesting thing that I had never thought about. And yeah. how, um, yeah, like, why can't people just live and let live, man? What the hell? Um, yeah. I, I, I was so shocked by some of the things that she came up with. Um, there's a, I don't even want to say their name, but there's a horrible group that, like, mocks the stories written by, that tend to be written by, like, young women. Yeah. Like, and I hate, I like fuck you oh i'm so mad that made piss yeah. me off misogyny Oof. man it's everywhere yeah oh, don't I know. don't yuck at other people's yums man nobody, as long as nobody's hurting anybody leave them alone so yeah it's weaponized yeah she made the point that like canon is weaponized to silence authors yeah. there's like that rep you know reverence of canon but also like but also ask yourself who is the story excluding yeah. um yeah so i want to definitely check out her new her new survey not new but she redid the survey the again in 2020 yeah. yeah yeah just to see like what the changes are to, uh, did we talk to her in 2019 and she was like rewrite she was getting ready to do the it survey was episode 13 so i think it was even earlier than that i think it might have been wow. 2018 okay it oh, was boy. like really early on in, for us yeah hmm it's crazy cool next we have something mighty queer Destabilizing Cis-Hetero Normativity in the Works of Tolkien by Dana Peterson Deep Rose. This presentation fucking ruled. It was so good. They okay. were amazing. Yeah. So they looked at God, I'm I'm I this one was just it was so good. And they fucking blasted through material, but in a way that like never felt rushed. It no. felt so coherent and like collected. It looked at challenging assumptions about the depictions of traditional roles and relationships in Lord of the Rings. Right. And particularly, quote, queer relationships in the sense that like it doesn't have to mean same sex relationships. It just meant that Lord of the Rings depicts a lot of relationships that are not just a man and a woman meet and get married and have kids. And that's the end of it. There's all kinds of relationships that are outside of that very small traditional box, despite what all of these fucking Twitter neckbeard motherfuckers <laughs> would have you believe. Seriously. There's so many different depictions of relations between people, Sam and Frodo and Rosie, and then Legolas and Gimli and Gilgalad and Elrond. You have all these different, just to name a few off the top of my head, you have all these different depictions of people living their lives outside of that traditional box. And then you have bigger ones like the way the elves live their lives, their their relationship with gender and the, the dwarves relationship with gender and relationships are all air quotes queer in mm -hmm. the sense that they, they defy these standards. And it was fascinating because it really it was a great piece to put kind of towards the end here because it very much did sort of put a nice bow on a couple of other pieces and say, look at all these things that maybe some of these that we've already touched on or some, some of the, even some other things. Tolkien embraced relationships between people that was not standard, that were queer yep. in the broadest sense of the word. And that's just the way it was. And if you want to see those as however you want to see those relationships, you can't deny that they were queer. Yeah. And I think that's terrific. And it was just such a well-delivered piece, just succinct and tight and just terrific really really terrific 
Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I was so floored by it. I, I think this might be the longest section of my notes just because like I was just going a mile a minute. I wanted to get everything down. Um, I, yeah, their idea of the word queer being like a mesh was was what they said, like a mesh yeah. of things. And that love, you know, does it doesn't have to be either hetero or homosexual because it doesn't have to be categorized. It can be everything. Right. Yeah. It, it can be it can be a, a spectrum um, and it should be a spectrum because relationships don't have to fit into a cookie cutter. Yeah. Um, and to reinforce those like normative gender roles is is to kind of do a disservice to it. Yeah. And they ended with that wonderful quote that the that Sam's old gaffer says, and I wish I had written it down, but you know where he says yeah. something like, um, "Oh, it's all a bit queer, and we could use a little bit more of that queerness around these parts." I thought yeah. that was wonderful. Yep. So I'm definitely going to be looking them up. I want to read more about this. It yeah, was for sure. Excellent. Same. Yeah. yeah. The last piece was Translation as a Means of Representation and Diversity in Tolkien's Scholarship and Fandom by Martha Celis Mendoza. This one was, I can sum this one up real easy. There's not enough scholarly material translated into other languages. Mm-hmm. And the scholarly material done in other languages isn't translated into English. As a result, there are a lot of people being excluded from the main body of Tolkien scholarship, and there's a lot of people that aren't ever included into, that never get exposed to it. And there's a lot of points of view of Tolkien scholarship that are never, we in the English scholarship community never see. Um, sure. And also that translations should be updated on a regular basis, which was cool. I didn't know that, that they yeah. retranslate stuff on the uh, regularly to uh, account for like language uh, updates and stuff like that, which is cool. I didn't know that. Absolutely. I, I really liked, I, I can't quote it directly, but basically she said, the value of Tolkien's work will bear different fruit from speakers from different languages. So the scholarly work of that text will be enriched by the soil or the place, right, in which we find those people. So yeah. to to get a great, big, beautiful tapestry of everybody's opinions, we need to be able to read and understand one another. And so what can we, let's get that, yeah, let's get that going. It was awesome. I really, yeah. really enjoyed it. I thought that was, what a great way to end two days of, of scholarship. Yeah, those last two pieces, I think, were the, the perfect two pieces to end on. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like they really summed up and encapsulated a lot of the best ideas. Not not the best ideas, but a lot of the, the ideas that were common throughout everything else, which was different viewpoints enrich the community. And there's more in the work itself than a lot of people are willing to acknowledge. The, the, the additive readings just bring out more from the story. So, yeah, one thing just to be said, you know, if you weren't able to attend, the Tolkien Society gathers all of these papers. Um, these were all papers that everybody wrote, right? Yeah. And had to ha- had to submit an abstract to to be able to do this. All of those papers are gathered in a publication and will be available for purchase um, on their website. And they've got past ones there too. So if you're interested in yeah. what they've done in past seminars, so if you're in, so if any of these these things really caught your caught your fancy, definitely head over. Uh, obviously, the publication is not ready yet, but will be. And then you could pick it up and read all about this directly from um, the amazing author who, who yeah. did this work. And definitely, you know, I mean, I would say, again, consider joining if you haven't. They've got like online memberships or, you know, there's different levels because I know not everybody has has 
got a ton of expendable funds all the time. Uh, but if you can become a member, they're great. And uh, if you can, maybe consider donating to them. They're yep. The work they do is invaluable. And to give a platform to all these um, excellent scholars is is invaluable for all of us. Agreed. So, Jude, what's the takeaway? What do you know? What's my takeaway here? Um, yeah. I think my takeaway here is that there are a lot of people doing some really great work within Tolkien studies to raise up other voices. And I think that that is a, a very exciting and valuable work. Yeah. And I think that's something that we, you know, as hosts of this, of this little podcast, we want to continue to do that. Um, the best thing Jude, you know, and I were talking before we started and we both agreed the best thing that we can do is to provide a platform for these other voices. So just to kind of renew our, our dedication to the show, like we're going to keep looking for these voices. And if you think of anyone who you think we need to be listening to, let us know on Twitter or, or whatever, um, come and find us on social media, uh, because we want to hear from you and we, we, we are dedicated to uplifting and supporting these other voices. Um, yep. Yeah. Great. Cool. Well, Jude, thank you for attending with me. Thank you. This literally just happened. So you guys are getting this like hot off the presses. We basically yep. ended, had a restroom break, and then went right into recording. So I am now going to go and play Minecraft and turn my brain off <laughs> for the next few days. Well, I, no, I not to, few I days, but days. I get to go play with a, a, five, a five-year-old that's really really hyper so i oh no (laughs) oh gosh yeah yeah i love the dwarf women right because they don't have to have children they can choose not to and that's that that's me so in so many (laughs) ways not only physically but also in that way i am very much a dwarf woman it's the beards The road may go ever on and on, but this episode is over. If you enjoyed this podcast, please think about maybe leaving us a little review over there on iTunes, as it helps increase our visibility. You can find us on the web, finally updated, woo at www.podcast.atherbeth.com. I'm just yanking Jude's chain, so no, I love you. It's okay. <laughs> uh, also, you can find the show on Twitter and Instagram at Atherbeth underscore cast. Jude can be found at Aramidic Jude, and I can be found at the North Four F O U R. Title music is Lord of the Devil Rings by Pony Music, courtesy of Pond Five. Today's episode was produced by James Pearson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Woo! She sounds like the hound of the Baskerville.